Great, so welcome everyone to the session on the 2nd of February 2019. <clears throat> Let's start with a centering technique practice. So if we close our eyes, sitting comfortably upright. This is a very good technique for clearing the mind. You can imagine it as a form of a spring clean for the mind. So we start by just becoming aware of our entire body. All the points of contact, the body with the chair and the floor. And as we begin to breathe, or become aware of the breathing, we bring the attention up to the space between the eyebrows, known as the third eye center. And I want you to imagine that in the space between the eyebrows, there is a small opening. And as we breathe, we're imagining that we're breathing in light with each breath into the space of the head through this aperture. And as the light enters, it expands and fills the entire space in the head, <coughs> cleaning, cleansing, purifying. And as we breathe out through that same center, we release. Any thought, tension, anxiety, concern. So just continue this practice for a minute. If the mind wanders or there's distractions, just gently bring the attention back to the space between the eyebrows and the flow of air as light through that aperture. Since you've all been given the mantra, the breath mantra, you could use that. The two syllables, one on the in-breath, one on the out-breath. But if you don't have a mantra, you can always use words like cleanse on the in-breath and release on the out-breath. knowing that the mantra is effectively doing exactly the same thing. You may feel sensation in the third eye area as you're passing energy through it. Perhaps a pressure or a tingling warmth or a coolness, whatever you experience is okay, just continue with the clearing. 
imagine with the incoming breath that the space within the head is beginning to expand outwards in all directions. So the boundary of the body is dissolving. And this field of light that is entering the space is now expanding outwards with each in-breath. As we transcend the body, any sense of limitation, we allow ourselves the consciousness of awareness to expand outwards as this growing field of light, filling the entire room. entire building. Ultimately spreading out in all directions, filling the galaxy and beyond to the whole universe. But we imagine ourselves now as this expanded field of pure light as consciousness. Free of all concern infinite and then we just rest in this infinite field Now gradually bring the awareness back to the breath. As you return to awareness of the body, bring the light with you. Imagine that the body now is filled with light, surrounded by light. As you return to the physical awareness of the body, maintain gentle resting awareness of the light 
slowly you can come back into the room. And then just observe what you perceive, the nature of perception. to report feel good why this I know it was annoying turn it off why these techniques work is they take us outside of mind outside of the busy thought stream and they give us a sense of a more expanded aspect of being which is more closely aligned with what the yogis would say is our true nature as being infinite, perfect consciousness. And we have to use the mind, it's interesting, we, it's, like a, it's like a bootstrapping exercise, you use the mind to go beyond the mind. So you use the imagination, the visualization, the focus on the breath initially, to give you something other than thought to be with. And then as you surrender, in, as it were, into the, into the exercise. Actually, sensation takes over and you actually start to experience, in some cases, the reality of this alternative state. It becomes perceptible, it's not imagination, and you actually feel the difference. Did you get a sense of that? The feeling of being very expanded, spacious? So, really it's doing in reverse what we normally do, which is where we use imaginary thoughts to limit ourselves. We call that fear, or we call it anxiety. It's all the same, um, it's the same dynamic, it's the same process, but it's working in an unhelpful way. And so what we're doing is we're just turning that around using exactly... So if you have a fear of something, that's just imagination, isn't it? You might visualize it as something that could go wrong. It's not real. It's no more real than what we just did. But the effect emotionally can be debilitating. And so why do that when you can, do, when you can use the same tool to move outside of fear into a much more preferable state that is um, more uplifting and more um, effectively healing. And the result really is what you experience afterwards when you sit here now having done that exercise. You do feel perceptively different and it's not your imagination. You, know, you, you could say the energy has shifted. So these are the things that we do. These are, these are what we call adjuncts to the core practice. These are ancillary practices that we can do as a preliminary practice before we meditate or as a practice in itself that we use just as we need it. You know, um, 
you know, is it really just a meditation, but just a small one? Yeah, it is a meditation. I mean, if you're going into the state, it's meditation. If you're going outside of mind, if you're going into a state of stillness, then it's a meditative technique. I was going to say that, you know, on the back of, the back of packets of um, medicine, pharmaceuticals, it says use as directed, use as required or as directed by your physician. So this is, this, I'm giving this to you as a technique that you can use as required. And the beauty of this is that there is no side effect other than bliss. So, you know, what do they say, don't operate heavy machinery or use while driving? That probably is the only caution. Um, but I mean, really, we're just, all we're doing is we're inducing within ourselves altered states of consciousness. We've got an infinite array of altered states of consciousness that we can choose. And therefore, why choose those states that are going to be degrading to us and debilitating and harmful, effectively, to ourselves? You know, um, if, if you've been looking at my Instagram posts, which I don't expect that you may have, you would have, but you can. I've been posting a series of 11 uh, sutras from Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. We talked about the other day. The first one is um, yoga is the cessation of the movements of the mind. Yogas chitti vritta. Yogas chitta vritti nirodaha. Yoga is the cessation of the vrittis, the waves, which are effectively thoughts or disturbances is a more accurate description. Um, so they, it's from the point of view of yoga, all thought is a disturbance or a modification or um, to, to use a physics term, you could say perturbation, you know, when something is perturbed, you stir it up. So it's a perturbation within the field of consciousness which is itself extremely energized, but also extremely still. This is the paradox of consciousness, is that in the deepest state, the experience is one of extreme calm, but there's energy there. It's a subtle form of energy, but it's incredibly powerful. And ultimately, the belief is that all the entire universe comes out of that state. It's a, it's a state of pure potentiality, but it is itself at rest. So the yoga, which is the state of union, is union with that field, that infinite field. And what stands between the perceiver and the experience of that state are the disturbances, are the waves of modification. And so the second sutra then he says is, uh, then the seer, once the waves or disturbances cease, then the seer abides in his or her own true nature. We'll just wait for Carlo to finish drinking. He's free of inhibition. I'm glad it's 
assume it's we have a little bit of inhibition. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, he always reminds me to drink more water. <laughs> well done. Um, so let, let's just backtrack a bit. So we're saying yoga, the state of union with the infinite field of consciousness, which is our own true nature. Yoga is the union with that state of being. Um, it comes about when the waves of thoughts or disturbances which stand between us and the experience of that state die down, they cease. So the lake becomes still. And then the seer abides in his own or her own true nature. So that means that when the disturbances cease, what are you left with? Just stillness. That is our true nature. And then he goes on to talk about the different kinds of thought modifications and there are five um, and I won't go into those now but we could explore those in a week or two from now when I've put a few more of these things up but he goes into the different very they're sort of like colors that the thoughts have different color they have different energies associated with them some of them are emotional states some of them are um, uh, perceptions of reality And then the seer rests in his true nature. See, that's actually a classic hit that you remove the disturbances in his bed, and then the seer is able to rest. So, so what, what really Patanjali is saying here is that the more that we understand what thought is, that it is merely movement within consciousness, the less likely we are to be captive to it because we start to see its own. Um, unreality, its own impermanence, that it's just a movement. Whereas usually what happens if we don't have these perspectives is that we're getting caught by the thoughts, we get lassoed by the thoughts, held captive by them, and then we, we ground under the wheels of the, that wagon train. We've been watching a documentary on the Wild West, so all these uh, metaphors are coming. But do you understand what I'm saying? Is that this is the human condition, is that we come to believe the reality of the thoughts that are occurring in our head, whether or not they're true. We accept them as true, true enough that they modify the way that we feel about ourselves and the way that we interact with the world. Is it not so? So what does liberation look like? Free of those negative thoughts. No limitation. Free of the necessity to believe in the reality of that which is not real. Free of the necessity, the feeling that you have to believe in that which is inherently not real. So in the yoga literature they talk about the snake and the rope. 
Have you heard this story? A person's walking along at night and they see something on the ground and they're paralyzed with fear. For all the world they believe that they're about to be confronted by a snake. And then a friend comes by with a lamp, a lantern, and they hold it over the object and it reveals the fact that it's merely a piece of coiled rope that someone's dropped on the ground. And so they've invested this non-threatening object with all the characteristics of something that is dangerous. And their whole view of what they're perceiving is coloured by a wrong, a misperception. And so liberation is seeing that the rope is a rope, that it's not the snake. Seeing things for what they are, seeing with clarity, seeing without the filter of conditioned thought or of um, misperception. Why do we misperceive things? What's stopping us from seeing the reality of life as it is rather than as we're projecting? Preconceived ideas. Largely, it is, it's conditioning. So you've given a whole toolkit of concepts and beliefs that you're walking around and everything that you're perceiving is being filtered through that, through that filter. And so nobody, is, there's no such thing as um, objective reality by this analysis, because we're all carrying different filters. So we can all look at the same thing, and this is true, isn't it? That we see, someone can see something as good, someone can see the same thing as bad. Or at least you'll get different degrees of reaction to the same, real, same objective thing. The only way that you can know it objectively is to remove the filter. To become free of the concepts. And then there's no investment then, at that point there's no real concern about what it might be because there's nothing to defend. Once you've dropped, so how often do we spend energy defending our beliefs? Don't we? Whether they're political beliefs, opinions, we invest a lot of energy defending these, this these constructs that we're carrying around. And the question that yogis would ask is, well, what if they're not true? <laughs> it shows you that there's a, that it's almost funny when you think of it that way, that you're defending. What if it's a, like a identity, identification with a nation, nationality? This is what war is. That you're given, you're born, into a country, you're told that's what you are, and then you have to go and, you know, fight for that, because that's the expectation. I know you guys are in the military, or were, so I'm not discrediting the um, need for appropriate, you know, just war or, or justifiable self-defense, not talking about that. But I'm talking about as humanity, generally, with war, what we're looking at are groups of people seeing themselves as separate, surrounding themselves with ideology. Look at terrorism. There's an ideology that surrounds the group. 
and they will go and kill themselves and other people in the name of that ideology. And the yogis would say, what if that isn't true? And what a ludicrous waste of life, of effort, of resources to defend something that is fundamentally unreal. So I'm saying at a, at a micro level, at an individual level, that translates into defending a point of view. I guess you could say that a liberated one, going back to the question, is one that has no point of view, nothing to defend. It's just, just observing without any bias, prejudice. You know, if you could drop that whole agenda, wouldn't that be liberating? person can have no filter, as you say, and that can, I think you have to go beyond no filter, because you have to know when to act and when not to act, and make decisions in this world, so it's going beyond not having a filter. Having no filter can lead to the wrong decisions. That's how I feel. So taking the snake and rope analogy, how would that apply in that case? You don't pick up the rope and it's the snake. <laughs> it would be observing the situation and having no fear even if it was a snake and acting accordingly. Right. Yeah, but I mean, I'm not arguing that you shouldn't take appropriate action. This is not an argument for passivity or non-action. This is an argument for appropriate action in the circumstances, but without um, without an, an agenda. So I think that's an important point that you raise of clarification. That we're not arguing here that this that a liberated state implies passivity. Or everything's okay. Yeah. There may be circumstances. I mean, with our teacher, it was a classic case, an enlightened being. And he could be very activist. But there's no even anger. But within 10 seconds, the anger's gone. It's like an application of a force to a situation that needed to be resolved and then it's finished. Someone needed correcting. So we have to, this idea of sainthood that we're walking around on a cloud doesn't actually cut the mustard in this relative realm. You've That's got what to, I was trying to yeah, focus. Yeah, you've got to take focus. action. Yeah. But the thing is, there's no agenda. Mm. So with someone that was angry for an agenda because they're trying to defend an egoic position, that's an entirely different... Mm action and the and the action is not a pure action they'd say that it's it is tainted by the um desire for control or for to to oppress or whatever it might be you're doing it for the wrong reasons i Whereas think in a high state of meditation 
you're able to act without a lot of mental activity and that action is usually the correct one. And so that's you go beyond even having a filter or what, you know. So the idea of being present, this mm. is why we come back to this idea of being present. I mean, the snake and the rope analogy is fantastic. We can sort of take it to the next level. Where were you when you thought the snake, the rope was a snake? Antarctica. Well, you were in your mind, weren't you? You were not, you were not in the present observing what was really there. You, you created a whole near future story of what mm. happened. You were living in a fiction in that moment. Mm. Not taking anything at face value of what is actually just presented. Exactly. So you, you immediately assume you make an assumption based on prior experience that X looks like Y, therefore it must be Y. And in that moment the mistake is made and the consequence is experienced, in this case it's fear, paralysis. Whereas to be free of that is free of that is to be present, to be fully aware. And then if it is a snake then you obviously do what you need to do if there's a snake there. But if it's a rope, you've saved yourself all the trauma of, uh, you know, succumbing to a fiction that only you created. Mm. I created a tiger once in tiger jungle that wasn't a tiger, it was a big piece of wood. <laughs> I think Same we do thing. it all the time. Now the other thing is, Sometimes the snake is a snake, but still what your reaction to that is still a function of conditioning, belief. We, there was in this very seat where I'm sitting now the other night, there was an American woman that was visiting with a friend. Ah. <laughs> and there was a spider, because it's about to rain, there was a big huntsman spider on that wall opposite. And it turned out she was arachnophobic, like seriously arachnophobic. And she kept looking at this thing and she was freaking out. And it's a huntsman. I mean, we know that they don't attack humans. But if you have that phobia, then it may as well have been the deadliest spider on earth. And she was feeling very uncomfortable. Um, particularly after I said that they can run 35 times their own body length in one second. <laughs> they are actually the fastest creature, one of the fastest creatures on Earth in terms of distance covered over time, relative to body size. Um, that was probably the wrong thing to say. But the truth is, that, but it was interesting to observe that, wasn't it? That yeah. she was so in her head, even though we were telling her rationally, that this was not going to hurt you, it wasn't even going to jump at us. It's useful, it kills you. Yeah, all of that. <laughs> Still the fear is there because there is some conditioning in there, some pattern that's being held in her consciousness that makes her believe that something that, is not da that isn't dangerous is dangerous. And all, all I'm saying is, I think to some degree we all do that a lot of the time. And I think the key to being present in the moment is that you learn to become at least more aware of those patterns that are playing out. You observe, and you can then ask yourself the question, 
is my response proportional to the truth? Firstly, am I sure of what I'm believing? That's the first question to ask. How sure am I that this is, a, yeah, this is actually a threat? That's the first, always. The first question is, am I, am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? Rather than going straight into reactive mode. And then the second question is, if it is what I think it is, is it actually a threat? Or what is the appropriate action to take? Fear may not be the appropriate action. You know, when you have training, emergency services, workers, go into situations that can be quite terrible, but they have a very cool head, don't they? Ambulance workers or firemen or whoever it is. They're clear, they're present, and they're able, because of training, they're able to exclude all of the normal emotions that non-trained people would experience, and they're able to act appropriately, fearlessly, proportionately to the situation as it's required. And there is a mental discipline in that, which is the training, which gives them their capacity to remain cool under pressure. And for that we admire them. But really what I'm saying, the, the sort of the call here is, can we not apply the same approach to life? A calmness, a clarity, a non-react... This is what dispassion is when they talk about in yoga, vairagya, this, this cultivation of a feeling of detachment, which you get, don't you, after you meditate, you feel a little detached, a little less reactive. It's in that detachment that you can be far more clear on the, what is the reality of the situation. Because the mind is still, the filter is at that moment less operational. And then you can just do what needs to be done or do nothing. So why am I saying this? What has all this got to do with meditation? that I'm talking about the cultivation of a state of mind that starts to take on this quality of liberation. Freedom from the conditioning that would otherwise cause us to act inappropriately. So that's what we're learning. That's what we're, we're becoming strong in our minds because we're becoming <clears throat> less of a captive to that past. I was, spoke to an Aboriginal elder this week, he's a healer in um, Aboriginal, the language they called Nankara, Nankara. And he said that um, a lot of what they do in Aboriginal healing is removing the belief in the person that there is actually something wrong with themselves. So it's a bit like mind over matter. And he said, he said something really funny, which I said I would use and quote. <clears throat> he said that the elder that taught him had said that the key to being free in the moment is to unhook the trailers 
So you can imagine they're living out in the desert, they see a lot of road trains going past. They're pulling trailers. And that load is effectively emotional baggage. Stuff from the past that we're carrying along with us all the time that is governing our present action and limiting us. And he's saying, unhook the trailer, unhitch the emotional baggage, the stuff that you've brought with you. Because that emotional baggage is keeping you separate <coughs> from what's really happening in this moment. So that's a great, that's, a, that's from, from an authority from another tradition. But applying exactly the same principles, it's interesting, isn't it? That the actual the medical science has picked up on these healers and they actually work in a, a real hospital now. Yeah. Yeah, because they're getting results with the people. But you have to believe, you have to give permission for this methodology to work. It's a bit like the placebo effect I was reading about, you know, about that. But, you know, it's 30% of cases now. It's the fact that you believe that something is doing you good, it will actually do you good. What is that a glass of wine? What is that other than what I'm talking about? That this idea that you give, that you can um, accept another reality that is more perfect, that isn't that isn't constrained by doubt. And in fact, they say the placebo effect is actually increasing. I wonder if that's a reflection of the evolution of human consciousness. That more people are coming to understand the power of the mind. And as they do, the actual proportion of people that are responding to the placebo effect is actually increasing. Don't you think that's fascinating? That there should be a shift across populations to higher degrees of placebo effect? Anyway, um, this video that I was recommending to you raises a number of important principles. But it comes back to this principle that we create our own reality. That was the principle that you asked me before. It's essentially that, that the, and so if it's a healing scenario, you, the patient, are creating the outcome. That you are, the doctors are not healing you, you're healing yourself. But you're giving permission for the healing to occur by supposedly surrendering to their expertise. But the healing is occurring in you. Yes, they're doing procedures. But the healing, you, the body is actually healing itself. And so with the Aboriginal stuff, there's absolutely no surgery involved, it's all well, psychic surgery, they're pulling energies out of people, waving smoke over them. But it's the end of, he said in the end, this guy said to me, he said in the end, it's only the belief of the patient that causes the healing, the effectiveness to work. Same as when they point the bone to, exactly. to end their life. The belief that some, a curse can be effective. So it turns out, and this movie talks about this, it's the power of belief. It comes back to the power of belief. That I think we're starting to understand more and more now. 
and traditional cultures I think they guess I, I think they arrived at it just by their own of their own accord every culture has beliefs so what do you choose to believe and that's what they say is that you examine your beliefs and the beliefs you know when we did yoga nidra the other week we're all lying on the floor and you're going into the deep states where you can start to access the subconscious that's where the beliefs are being stored they're in the subconscious mind so if you really want to do this work and get to the beliefs that are governing your attitudes and behaviors yeah it's more access being able to access or lucid dreaming as well being able to access subconscious states and there you see all the baggage that you're towing along and you can unhitch the wagon I've taught people that haven't continued meditation although they got a good effect from it and I've often wondered why they give up or they at least postpone it and it seems to me that there has to be an investment in the, the discipline of sitting every day what makes you invest in anything it is the result but it's a desire for change it is, it's, it's, but isn't it also um, taking responsibility for the state of mind that you're in owning it rather than trying to blame or point the finger at someone else and so I think key to persistence in meditation is an acknowledgement within yourself that you need to do something other than what you've been doing and here is something that for the first time can give you the benefit that you have to apply yourself but I think the other thing is and this may be just a sign of the times in our culture we've come to expect instantaneous results from things this is a very now sort of from the internet instant gratification culture isn't it we want people are less patient they want everything now so the idea of sitting in a chair or on the floor every day for 15 20 30 minutes like from now till the end of your life for a lot of people that is unappealing because they want it now they want it all now and it doesn't work that way it could work, it may work that way depending on your belief and your desire and your surrender to the process but all of those things require uh, courage actually to let go of the thing that you know, you know this thing about the baggage that you're carrying with you sometimes we get very attached to the beliefs that we're carrying around we don't want to let them go. We're familiar with them. And yeah, even if those beliefs are causing us suffering, we know them. They're familiar. Mm. I think I touched on it last time I was here about focus or attention and then mindfulness. Mm -hmm. 
And that, that step to having your attention to mindfulness is the big one. Mm. And obviously it may take some time. Because coming in here, I think I can get, I can have a tension where I can take away fear and anxiety. Mm -hmm. And we might call it peaceful. Mm -hmm. Really, it's like a blissful dullness. Because mm -hmm. uh, without the mindfulness part, mm -hmm. it is just that. It's taken away a lot of everything else. And I've got nothing. However, it's lacking the mindfulness part. And the attention to mindfulness is the thing that takes a lot of practice. And that's where the joy comes from, mm -hmm. eventually, when you can finally look at all those thoughts. But to have that skill is obviously... It takes practice. It takes practice, yeah. I wouldn't say, I mean, maybe blissful dullness initially, but eventually it should become blissful clarity. Yeah. Well, it's like a spectrum. Yeah. If, if you want to start to the point where you're actually getting something from meditation, I would describe it as blissful dullness mm. and awakening up this end. Mm -hmm. And we're just along that path, and however long that takes is up to you. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, so I just noticed that I'm down this end of the, of the scale at the moment. But are you yeah. not getting glimpses of the other end? Yes, which is encouraging. That's what keeps me, you going. Keeps me going. Yeah. yeah. But I could see how some people could get to the point where they, they take away that anxiety briefly. And every time they meditate, they might do that. Mm. But taking it out and, have, and being mindful in the presence, in life, and not sitting down and taking, that's a, that's a big step. Mm -hmm. You mean not just rely on that time that you're meditating? Mm. No, where your attention can take you away. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's peaceful. Yeah. However, that mind, attention to mindfulness, instead of just attention to uh, the, the third eye or your breathing, is, is a, a vastly more difficult step. But the, see, the neurology has to change. This is the point that we now know. Is that when you meditate, it's not that nothing is happening. There is a lot going on at the brain, at the cellular level in the brain. There's a restructuring of the neurology towards a condition where mindfulness is naturally supported by, this, by the new, newly configured brain. So mindfulness, see, mindfulness is a practice that people do, sit there and be mindful. But they walk away and they find it really hard to be mindful all the time. It's very hard to be mindful by will because you get distraction and stuff happens. But what I say is that by regular immersion in the state of meditation, the configuration in the brain occurs whereby mindfulness emerges as a long-term byproduct that you don't have to try and be mindful, you just are. Mm. So that's the key. Which takes practice. Well, and it takes hours sitting in, being in the state, cumulatively. Yeah. Every minute that you can spend in the transcendent state, the deepest states of meditation, you're getting massive change occurring. It's like putting money in the bank. Mm. Mm. It's cumulative, but it must be sustained. You can get changes in neurology after eight weeks that you can see on MRI scans in those areas that govern mindfulness and regulate fear and anxiety. Within eight weeks, you will see volumetric change in those parts of the brain measured in cubic, they call them voxels, volumetric pixels. You're so talking about the amygdala 
can't coming back to its normal size in a person that's anxious it's it's larger than mm-hmm. it should be and with embedded anxiety and then so PTSD correlates with enlarged structures in the brain that govern emotional regulation and fear and reactivity and you know you hear a loud noise and you dive under the table that kind of thing that's to revert neuroplasticity is a two-way street structures can either increase or decrease according to the what what the environmental stimulus is if the environmental stimulus is sustained stress or fear over 5 10 15 20 years or even one-off incidents that are just hugely traumatic will cause changes in the amygdala in rats they did an experiment where they held rats in a stress position so they tilted the cage so the rat couldn't lie properly on the floor to sleep and after 7 days they emerged structural changes in the amygdala correlating with stress then they returned the cage to the flat position so the stress position was relieved and 21 days later they measured the same rats and found that the amygdala remained enlarged even though the stress had been removed so the effects on the amygdala are persistent even though the stress isn't there so what meditation does is it comes in and it provides deep states of rest and relaxation which deactivate those parts of the brain and simultaneously they stimulate the parts of the brain that govern seeing things in perspective or just deep states of peace or whatever it is that we experience that everything that we experience has got a neurological correlate so the point about long term practice is we are actually investing in a better nervous system a better neurology whereby all the fruits of meditation can manifest without effort because the neurological structure is just now attuned to delivering that experience and when we struggle the times that we it doesn't matter how long you meditate you still have those odd days don't you when sure so that's the field that you need to navigate and but the but the people that are in this for the long term will still sit and i mean you you know everything in nature is up and down the weather changes some days you'll feel very still and you'll go easily into meditation other days it'll be a struggle but it's those days where you still sit though it's a struggle progress is still being made so that's the key to all this we come back to this idea of the principle of creating your own reality is it begins with what you what what you're investing in your own capacity to change how much are you putting in is that's what you'll get out so and and i mean the great thing is it's actually quite enjoyable it's most of the time except on those days where it seems like a bit of a, bu- a struggle but don't you find that just sitting there having that time so it's not like we're asking you to i mean we we saw a documentary of yogis the other week where they at the Kumbh Mela so there's 120 million people that all go to take a dip in the Holy River and there's yogis that come down from the mountains that are doing all sorts of austerities to bring about psychic powers quickly and so they you know you've seen the archetypal ones where they 
lie on beds of nails and stuff like this. But there's a guy walking around that hasn't lowered his arm in, was it 12 years? No, longer. <laughs> and his arm had withered. And it's a, it's a, what do you call it, an austerity. It's like a mortification of the body. So you can do that, but I'm not asking you to do that. I'm just asking <laughs> you to sit in a chair. <laughs> right? But that's, that's what they do. I've seen them in India. I've seen them doing the most bizarre things. Um, I saw a guy once rolling. Yeah, that was rolling Baba. I don't know if it was him, but it was someone doing what... So they roll. He was on a pilgrimage going, I don't know how many hundreds of kilometers. And he was basically, he had something wrapped like a sack wrapped around him, but there wasn't much between him and the road. And he was just rolling along the road. And to us, that's completely ludicrous. But I mean, I would imagine these guys are rational and they know what they're doing. And there's some precedent for this, that they believe that when they do this, they gain something. Are they all male? No, there's women too. Oh, lots of yeah. But I bet the women don't do silly things. Sadies, they call them. You don't see as many of the women, but they're definitely there. Yeah, no, they're not just men. Um. So that dullness, that blissful dullness that I was talking about, mm -hmm. I it was potentially it's like a, that's a, a big step when you get to that because you take away that anxiety. However, the next steps are like this, and I think that's why some people may give up. Yeah, that's true. Get to that point you get the initial hard. hit. Yeah, yeah. However, the next steps are yeah. gradual, incremental, and over a long time. Yeah. Would you say detachment rather than dullness? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not liking dullness. So no, it's, it's like blissful. a transitional. Blissful dullness. It's a transitional. Okay, phase. blissful it's dullness. The, it's the first stage where you've removed the negative or the tearing thoughts, the negative thoughts. Yes. And so I am there's a transitional this. stage where there's a sort of a like a numbness but or a, a you say dullness or an emptiness without I suppose it much could feeling. be it would be a dullness over time mm. if you didn't take the next step to attention to mindfulness, because mm -hmm. essentially that would that eventually would be what you were doing, because you were just taking away everything, but you weren't going to the point where you were you you were gaining liberation, because you were aware of your thoughts, mm -hmm. and and so I can bring my focus or attention, and take away those fears and anxieties, and and it is peaceful. We've described it as peaceful, and that's what it is. It is comfortably numb. Yeah. Mm. It's because I've taken away those things in my life that, however, I'm still not mindful of really of those thoughts. You know, that's the part, that's the bit that's, you know, that, so you've got a big curve up initially, I think, and then you've got a series of steps that take time. What about when there's no thought? So that's the hard part, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I haven't really, I don't think without attention to focus on something rather than attention on mindfulness about what my thoughts are and therefore have no thoughts, mm. I haven't experienced But that's that. not the end game. Remember, come back to what I said at the beginning, the second sutra. The first sutra is, he's not talking about mindfulness here. 
is talking about a cessation of movement, of modification, waves, vrittis. And then the seer comes to rest in their own true nature. There's no mindfulness, there's no thought, there's no activity. It's just being, pure being. There's no mind actually. Mindfulness is, is an important stepping stone, but it's not an end in itself. We see all the literature around mindfulness. But the act is ultimate states beyond mindfulness where there is no mind, it's just transcendence. Do you think it's just the choosing an easy way to start people off, those that are really anxious and so well, see, the thing is, In the West, we love the mind. So anything that says use your mind to be mindful, people like that because it's something to do with the mind. And it's a good practice. I'm not in any way discrediting it. But what I'm saying is there are states beyond mindfulness that are even more ecstatic. You come into states called, um, I call it pervasive ecstasy, where there is just an, in, there's just a sense of incredible joy with no nothing going on and total presence. That's that's where you're getting to. Yeah. Anyway, you know we can get hung up on words. I know I'm using a lot of words here because we're we're dealing with questions and concepts and we're we're trying to navigate um, through experience and things come up and you want the mind wants the explanation. You know, I know you haven't really had many questions. I'm preempting your questions. But really, allow the questions to cease. And the truth will reveal itself. Because we try too hard again. Mm. And that brings me to the final point, because then we want to meditate. Um, I want to return to this idea of least effort. Right, this is another thing about having the right approach to your practice. If you observe nature attentively, you'll see that everything in nature is tending towards least effort. See the curtains are blowing in the breeze? There is a force acting on them they're not resisting. They're moving in accordance with the force that acts. If you see a tree blowing in the breeze, it's actually giving way in that moment, isn't it? It's surrendered. It's surrendered to the force and it moves. If you see waves breaking on the beach, they're not exerting effort, they're responding to effort. But the movement, you know, we look at the surf, Brent, Brent, don't we? And you see the waves are rolling in, and there's definitely a force that is driving them, but the waves themselves are not exerting effort. They are the response to effort. They're not resisting. They? They're not resisting. It's a very subtle point. When you walk, 
as the feet move, there is propulsion, but the actual direction of the leg in that moment is the most efficient and least resistant trajectory that it can take. Unless you're doing funny walks. That would be taking effort. But if you're walking effortlessly, efficiently, then biomechanically, your movement is the least effortful in the direction that you're going. Do you follow what I'm saying? If I swing my leg like this, not so, not that way. The, mo the most harmonious method is effortless. We see it, you have a look in nature, the path of a bird through the sky, or water following the, the path of least resistance. Everything is moving towards minimum, towards the course of minimum effort. It's surrendered. And so when we sit to meditate, use that approach of the principle, I call it the principle of least effort. When you do that, you'll be acting in accordance with nature, which is all, even when galaxies are formed, any process that's occurring, it's the, what is occurring is the least effortful expression of that force. Would you say then that actually the thought of meditating in itself creates effort? You're thinking, I'm going to sit here for, I'm going to sit here for 20 minutes to meditate. You're also putting some pressure on yourself. The effort is to come and sit, but once you're sitting, you apply the technique with the least amount of effort. You're not resisting. You're moving. So if a thought comes and you're remembering that you're not meditating, in that moment you're aware that you're not with the breath or the mantra or whatever you're using, how much effort should you use to return to the breath and the mantra? And the answer is the least amount of effort possible. Do you know why? Because the effort itself is counterproductive. Because the state, yeah, the state that you're seeking to enter is a zero effort state. So if you seek to approach the state with effort, you're actually moving away from the state. That's the key point. If you find that it's difficult to get into the state, you're using too much effort. You have to be like the water flowing down the stream. It finds its own way. The only effort is to remember to come back. Got it? Mm. So do you do that? But is there techniques in order to try to provide the least, least effort? Yeah. Drop effort. <laughs> <laughs> Don't try. Is it hard not to try? 
I think initially it would be easier, you know, if you come back to a mantra, for example, yeah. it's easier for you to come back. Yeah. That's what I meant about that. Yeah, that's the effort, is the coming back. Yeah. But I'm saying, now, this is a very, this is like an advanced piece of advice here that people often miss. And they're sitting there not meditating, they're wondering why they can't get in the state. And the answer is because the state is zero energy. They say in the yoga scriptures that it's as if you're approaching a frightened animal in the woods, a deer. If you jump at it, or rush at it, you're going to frighten it away. So you have to approach it with such gentleness, such subtle, subtle action, that it's almost as if you're not moving at all. Do you see animals? Carlos stalks other animals on the beach. You see animals in nature when they're stalking? They're barely moving. So that, that's the approach, is the least amount of effort to come back to the technique. So, firstly you have to notice that you're not meditating. How much effort does it take to notice that you're not with the technique? But to notice. It's a thought. It's just a tiny, imperceptible amount of effort to first recognize that you're not with the process. And then how much effort, this is the key point, how much effort does it take to bring the awareness back? And that's how much. It should be almost none. It should be a gentle coaxing of the awareness back. And then you'll find that despite the fact that you're with thoughts, you've sat down with the intention to meditate. So the intention has already pushed you in the direction. You're on a trajectory. Whether you know it or not, the intention has already put you on the trajectory to take you into a meditative state. So you return and the first thing you'll notice is I'm deeper than I was. Even before I had that distraction, I'm still descending the spiral. It's true, you, you, you try it today when you meditate. As you become aware that the thought has captured you and you come back, notice the state then compared to before and it will always be deeper. And then you'll, you can be pleased. Momentarily you can give yourself a slight feeling of contentment that it is actually working, but then you must return. Keep coming back to the stillness. The mantra will eventually attenuate of its own accord as everything moves back into pure consciousness, which is by nature zero effort, therefore no vibration, no thought, no sound, nothing. Then the mantra itself is beginning to take on those attributes. It becomes more subtle, fuzzier, less defined. Because it's returning to source. And the beauty is, the mantra is the vehicle, it's taking you, your awareness with it. So you hitch yourself to that wagon and you follow it down into the, into the silence, into the stillness. Right? That's the key. This shouldn't be hard. If it's hard, there's too much mind involved. 
that's what I'll find that what should the mantra look like? Um, that might sound like a strange question, but I think um, you know, do I, I, I sometimes get distracted by concentrating on it? If that makes sense. Because don't like, don't concentrate on it. Yeah, it's okay for it to. It will change form. People think, oh, I'm not saying it right. It's not like it's a magic incantation. It's true if you pronounce mantras out loud, Sanskrit, it has to be accurate. But once we set it free into consciousness, into the internal space, it will sound, it can sound different to the mind. And you think, I'm not saying it right, but what you shouldn't do is come back and hit reset and come out of meditation to re-articulate the mantra in the right way. Instead, you just allow it because it will lose definition. It's starting to take on the characteristics of pure consciousness. And to the mind it may not sound like what you started with, but that's okay, as long as it's there and then it cannot be there. So that's a good point, a good question that you raised there. Good to ask it. That's the answer. Don't be concerned about that. I look for the gaps sometimes between the hum and the sound. Mm -hmm. And then there's just that little black gap. Mm -hmm. And then that will set me into that space. Yep. And then that space just gets bigger. Nice. You walk through the gap. Mm. Yep. So hamsa doesn't matter then. No. It's there if you need it. It will, it will be repeating often itself in the background. You're not doing any of this, remember. You're just tuning in. Okay, remember all this, least effort. You'll get better at this. I mean, it's practice, but it's like anything. But this is the skill. Do you know when you see trades people, any artists, anyone that's at the top of their field, surfers, anyone, it look, they make it look effortless. That's skillful. That skillful application of technique. Okay, so that's my final piece of advice. Become aware with just awareness. Return. Follow it down. Don't be concerned if it, you lose it or it changes. Or even if the breath stops. You don't have to breathe, don't have to do anything, you're just going into the stillness. And then what happens when you get to the stillness? You're there. You're there, you don't do anything, no doing, just be. All good? I know too many words today, but now we can counter it with a big dose of silence.